Well, I invite you to take your Bible with me, and we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 2, our Bible text for this morning, verses 4 through 25, the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 2, if you're using the church Bible, you're going to find that in page 2, page 2. So uh, in the live stream at home, I encourage you to actually follow along in your Bibles. Take a Bible, open it up, and, and uh, track with where we're going. Well, let's hear God's word as it is read. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord, made, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now to the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, would you join me in praying for help, divine help in this time? Father in heaven, we need to hear from you. This word is food for our souls. It makes us wise to salvation. It sanctifies us because it is truth. And Lord, 
you call men to preach, and they are flawed, as am I. So, Lord, we need something beyond the voice of a mere man to grip our hearts, and we pray that your Spirit indeed in this time would, would plant in our hearts your true living and active Word. So, Lord, help me not to be in the way of it, and give us all, Father, uh, ready ears, expectant hearts to hear from you now, so that the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in our lives and in this church. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Well, in the next uh, weeks and months, there are going to be some new babies to welcome in this church family. Whether by birth or adoption, these parents expecting these little ones are, are excitedly and joyfully preparing to welcome these, these little miracles and we get this, parenting is no mere obligation. Parents, fueled by, by love, you're going to make sure to have a room ready. And, and as those little ones grow, you're, you're going to baby-proof places that, that could be hazardous. Baby gates, corner guards, and coffee tables, and, and brick fireplaces, you know the, the drill. Things that the, we used to do are now considered absolutely hazardous for children. It's amazing my children live through bumper pads and a quilt Amazing that they're alive today, but we, we take seriously uh, what we should do to protect and keep their well-being. You want to make a space for them that is ideal. So before they come home, you're going to have sleepers and diapers, a baby monitor, maybe a sound machine. We never had those. Um, you, you do what you do to make sure that they can thrive, more than survive, but thrive. And as they're weaned, they're going to graduate to other foods. You shop for just, just the right fruit and vegetables that they'll help their bodies mature and grow. But that's not enough, is it? Those babies need to feel your tender touch. They need to hear your soothing voice. They need to see your smiling face. They need you. Now, you may be wondering where I'm going with this illustration. See, as we turn to our Bible text this morning, we're going to see how God has provided good gifts to his image bearer, his son, Adam. Uh, Terry, after I gave her the, the message title, she proposed that we should call this God's good gifts. That's a better title than the one I have. So these are God's good gifts. And what are these good gifts from the Lord that God has provided? As we unfold this text before us, we're going to see that God has provided a place, that God has provided life and sustenance for that life, and God ultimately provides fellowship, the gift of himself. And as we seek to apply this to our own lives this morning, God's desire is not just for Adam, but for, enjoy, for us as his people today, to enjoy these good gifts too. First of all, we want to talk about the gift of place. And before I get into this point, I have to acknowledge that we read a pretty long passage and there are some things that you hope we'll cover. And, uh, you know, uh, Bobby and I were talking. You can't preach everything from a Bible text. You've just got to land on some things. But So follow me on this outline and, and uh, as I study it in the next weeks, I, I may have occasion to come back to this same text because there's so many things I just didn't cover. But we're going to talk this morning about these good gifts from the Lord. First of all, the gift of a place. The gift of a place. 
Now, when, uh, when Dorothy wanted to get back to Kansas to be with Auntie M, Glinda told her to close her eyes, kick her heels together three times, and say, there's no place like home. And I think we can all identify to some degree with the feeling of that, that scene in The Wizard of Oz. We have felt that at one time or another. And maybe you were deployed. Maybe, maybe you were on an extended business trip. Or, or perhaps you had moved away. And, uh, and you were longing to be back to what was, what was familiar and safe. Truly, there is no place like home. Well, God had it in mind to make man after his own image. And he did so. To make him in his own image and likeness. And he wanted his image bearers to have a place to dwell, a home where, where the man would thrive and be, be fully satisfied in the very presence of God. And what God provided was the gift of a place. Now, with God's perfect knowledge of man who he created, he was able to create a perfect place for him to dwell, a place about which Adam would, would undoubtedly say, there's no place like home. So as we consider the place that God gave to man, that God gave to Adam, I want you to notice, first of all, the goodness, the goodness of the place. Back in chapter 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So yes, it was, and we talked about this in weeks past, it was certainly pleasing to God, but it was very good in the sense that, that it was the ideal place for man to dwell. And now in chapter 2, God gives that land a name. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Eden, that means delight or pleasure. So really, this is reinforcing what God had already said about it when he made the land, that man would likewise see the land as a delight. And notice the garden that he planted was in Eden. So we can imagine that there's this, this smaller place within the larger uh, place called Eden, which was in, in its whole a delightful place. So God created this delightful place for man to dwell, and within it he placed a special garden, a, a special place where, where God would dwell with man. Now, at this point, if our, if our minds are drawn to think of Canaan, the land of promise. Again, we have to understand that the Pentateuch is written from the perspective of the Israelites just about to take the promised land. So, so now Moses is drawing them back to the creation story as they are about to possess the land. So if we're, we're seeing a parallel, that's intentional. I want you to consider the location of the place. It's a good land, but consider the location of the place. We're told in the text. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So that, that, that land was bounded by four rivers. The Pishon, we don't know where that is, but we're told there uh, of the goodness. Again, hearkening back to the goodness of the land. There's gold there, good kind, and bedellum and, and onyx stone. The land, we're told, is, is a rich land. There's no hint of want, nothing lacking in the land. Well, that second river, we're told, is the Gihon, and that's probably the Nile which flowed around the land of Cush, which is Egypt. The Tigris and the Euphrates, those are known. So it would seem, if you, if you, if you uh, look at where these four rivers are located, it would seem that Eden and the promised land, the, the land promised to Abraham, outlined in Genesis 15, 18, are one and the same. So like 
the garden that the Lord planted in Eden for man's dwelling place, Canaan, is likewise described as a place of delight. And, and you can see this as, as, as the Pentateuch unfolds and as they're about to possess that land. It is described in Exodus 3.8 as a, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. We see, that, we see that description used 15 times through the first five books of the Bible, a land flowing the milk, with milk and honey. And it's five more times in the Old Testament from Joshua to Ezekiel. So the location of the land is, is ultimately the promised land. But the purpose of the land, and I think this is more important, the purpose of the land, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Now, reading our Bibles in English, I think a plain reading would seem like God's primary intention for the man was to work. Now, I'm going to rest here on the scholarship of others, but I've become convinced that there are legitimate reasons to question the translation. And uh, without going into all of the details of it, the problem really is a carryover from the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. So look, look at verse two, or chapter 2, verse 8. Described there, Eden in the east, and there he put, the word put, the Lord put the man whom he had formed. Hebrew word there is sum, and it means to place or rest. What we think is put. You place or rest something there. You, you set it in, in, in its place. But if you look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him, put him. That there's a different word there. It's nuach. And what that word means is primarily to give rest. The Lord God gave rest to the man. And really, further to the same idea, working the ground seems to be a consequence. If you look ahead in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, working the ground seems to be a consequence of sin. Sin barred man from God's rest and brought toil. So I'm convinced here that the, that the Lord God put the man in the garden to worship and obey. And because the Lord, in, in the story, that we've, we've already dealt with this, because the Lord rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he set in motion something, the seventh day is meant to be this perpetual rest. So it follows that the place that, that the Lord prepared for man was meant to be an eternal rest. So I'm going to give you a translation that I think would be better. The Lord God, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and gave him rest in the garden in Eden to worship and obey him. Now I get it. I, I mean, I looked all of this up and, and I know that Hebrew linguists are going are gonna to maybe quibble over, over a translation, but, but it still remains that wherever man may dwell on earth, the duty of man, according to the word of God, reinforced by Jesus in Luke 4, 8, is to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's certain, whatever you think of the purpose of the land, first and foremost, it would be for the man to worship God and serve him only. Obey. Now, we know what happens 
Look ahead in the story. Because of man's sin, he is ultimately banished from that garden. And because we are offspring of Adam, like our first parents, we are outside of Eden, longing to return to that land. And we get it, right? All we have to do is look around. Yeah, there are places of beauty in this world, and we can look at the blanket of snow coming down and think, that that's, that's great looking. It's hard to drive in. But, but setting aside what we see in terms of the creation itself, how things function in creation, we see around us that there is strife, there is hatred, there is unrest, there is abuse, there is disease, we experience that, there are warring nations, there is fear. This isn't Eden. Now, as, as the people of God, we get to hold to glimpses of our future rest in Eden when we gather to worship like this. Doing so, however, we must keep in mind what Jesus said. John 16, 33, In this world you will have Tribulation. So it isn't Eden. Jesus said, it's not Eden. This is not the promised land. And we have no power to create it. Yet, with hopefulness, Jesus said this, take heart, John 16, 33 continues, I have overcome the world. And ultimately, through his death on the cross for our sins, Jesus' own resurrection from the, day, from the grave, he has overcome the world system that is opposed to God. So for all of us, and I trust that's all of us here this morning, for all of us who long for the appearing of Christ, one day Eden will be restored. The land, the ideal land will be restored to us. Jesus promised in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. And troubled for those disciples was that Jesus was going away. But there's also, broadly speaking, trouble in the world. Jesus said there's tribulation. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I've told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And when we get there, when the Lord Jesus returns, then we who are the people of God, I have no doubt we will say, there is no place like home. God gives the gift of a place, part of his good gifts. Secondly, we can see that God has given the gift of life and sustenance, sustaining that life. Every time I uh, conduct a funeral service, Part of my opening remarks, I, I make reference to the fact that life and death alike are mysteries to us. They are. Now, biologically, we know why life ends. But as much as we observe life, we simply, and we all get this, is so obvious, we simply don't have the power to give it, do we? Now, while God has given us the privilege of participating in procreation, that process, we understand that that does not even guarantee life. And, and many of us know all too well and have grieved that conception does not always result in the birth of a child. And then there's sustaining life. 
the lives we have. We know the things that we ought to do, right, regarding health and nutrition and eating right and good exercise, but, but we know that these do not absolutely guarantee that we can sustain life, right? And how many stories have we heard, especially during this pandemic, about one who was otherwise healthy and exercised regularly and they succumbed to COVID-19? Now, there's some God deniers, I think, who will assert that we will one day have the power. We have to humbly admit that the power of life is not ours. It belongs to God alone. And that we have it at all, that's a gift from God. God both gives and sustains life. It is a gift. Look at verse 7. What did God do? The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, now this tells us that God not only formed the man out of the soil, but that the man needed something that did not come from the earth, the very breath of God. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. Think about this. The evolutionists want us to believe that somehow the earth generates life. So beginning with some kind of prebiotic soup, progressively evolving over billions of years to greater and more complex life forms. And voila, man. Now, this is considered settled science. It's taught in our public schools, or some form of it. But it's nothing more than a faith claim. The Darwinian theory of evolution is simply an article of faith for those who deny the existence of God. The scripture here is clearly telling us without the breath of God, there would be no life at all. Now, the narrative tells us here that not only that man was given life from God, but that the man would continue to live by what God had provided. So we have to understand God gives life. And he doesn't just make us self-sufficient. He sustains our life as well. And he certainly sustained the, the man's life. Look at what God did for him. Verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Good for food. Pleasant to see. Good for food. And I'd probably add tasty. Fruit is tasty. So these fruit trees for eating, these were given by God. They would be for sustaining him and for his enjoyment. Really a, a constant reminder that the very gift of the land, the place, and the very life that he experienced in the land, that had been given by God now, we're told, as we look at the rest of verse 9, we're told how the man would continue to exist and how life could continue forever. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, much could be said about these trees. But I'm going to make a very brief point around these. What of these trees, strange trees? Well, we know from verse 17 that eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would mean death. On the other hand, there was the tree of life. And I take it that, that 
what the man was to understand that it was not merely that he could eat that would assure his continued life. Not that he would that, that his continued life would depend on merely eating. Certainly that was part of it. But obedience to the very command of God. Obedience is life. Now we've got to pause there. The way the world lives, there's an assumption that if I just make enough money, get the right stuff, do the right exercise, that I'm going to sustain my life. No, the Scripture is telling us, no, you want to live? Obedience to the way that God has prescribed is the path to life. Now, we have to acknowledge that because we have not obeyed perfectly, we are all going to taste death. But even as we think to apply this truth, as we think of how we operate in our days, the way of life is always going to be through obedience to the Word of God. And we can, we can conclude in some, some very concrete ways that disobedience does lead to very real and immediate death. Indulge your body with whatever the flesh would desire could very well lead to your death. And you can imagine a, a myriad of ways that that would happen, but we get that. Bottom line, disobey God and death is the result. Now, alternatively, we've got the tree of life in the garden representing the life of God at the very center of the garden, reminding the man that God alone gives and sustains life. Now, right here, again, there are, there are echoes of what was presented to the Israelites as they were about to possess the land of Canaan. This message has not changed. Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord will, God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Well, of course, as Adam and Eve failed, so the Israelites failed they got into the land and they failed and they were eventually expelled from the land just as Adam and Eve would be expelled from Eden and they would die. Here's the reality. Physical death is the physical consequence of sin which ultimately leads to spiritual death. Physical death is the physical consequence of sin which leads to spiritual death. Stated another way, sin, disobeying God is why we die physically. And sin is also why we die spiritually. Physical death is a separation of the, your spirit from your body. Spiritual death is a separation of you, your, your essential personhood from the very life of God. That's why it says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. 
Now, inasmuch as physical life did not spring forth on its own, neither does spiritual life. Reversing the effect of sin, spiritual death, that's something only possible with God. So to live spiritually, you must be born again. As Jesus said in John chapter 3, what you need, what I need, you need the wind of the Spirit. The wind, the, the, the breath of God to be blown, as it were, into your spiritual nostrils. That's what you and I need. And to be sustained in life before God, you and I need the food of his word. This is what the hungry Israelites, as they wandered in the wilderness, were told before the Lord provided that, that manna from heaven. Here's why. Deuteronomy 8.3 He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You want to live. You need the food of the word. And as you hear and believe the word, the spirit blows, breathes new life into you, and raises you up. So the written word of God, this text of scripture that we have that ultimately reveals Christ who is the living word, the written word reveals Christ the living word, John 1.1, 1, 1. revealing him as the, the way to life, John 14.6. This written word both makes us alive spiritually and sustains us spiritually. That's why the Apostle Paul so beautifully summarizes before he goes on to explain the gospel in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the word of God brings life and the word of God sustains life. And that word is about Jesus. That's why Jesus said when he was teaching in the wilderness after he'd fed the multitude, John 6, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They understood. They didn't, they didn't think that they, they, he literally meant eat his flesh. Take all of Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, are you, are you feeding on the word of Christ? Do you delightedly join with us together? to hear God's word? Do you listen so that you can be fed? Do you read to live? Let me commend to you the word of God as the very means of sustaining your life. God is the one who gives and sustains life. It is a gift. And in as much as, as the life itself is the gift, 
The very word that sustains life is a gift. Well, third, God gives the gift of fellowship. These are good gifts from God. The gift of fellowship. Uh, is it just the stuff of fiction that people who have lived in isolation for years on end, they're a little uh, off, maybe a little nutty, right? Maybe it's not fiction, right? I, I read an article uh, in a journal, it's called Science Art, said that one of the reasons that living in isolation is difficult is because humans are social creatures. Many people that have lived in isolated environments, such as researchers stationed in Antarctica, they report that loneliness can be the most difficult part of the job. This article goes on to describe Yossi Ginsberg. He was an uh, Israeli adventurer. He's also an author. He survived weeks alone in the Amazon. And he said that loneliness was what he suffered from the most. And what he had done is he created imaginary friends to keep himself company. Loneliness can be damaging to both our mental and physical health. Socially isolated people are less able to deal with stressful situations, the article says. Now, clearly, what some have concluded through uh, experiment and experience, God declared from the beginning, verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, since it was God's intention for man to multiply and fill the earth, certainly it was not good for God's purposes for the man to be alone. And the man, the male, did need a suitable helper to carry out the task. But procreation was by no means the only reason. Before God made woman, God made it clear to Adam that there was a, a void. It's not good for man to be alone. And what he did to make this clear to him is he gave Adam a task. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What Adam saw was that in naming the animals, he saw the pairs, two of a kind, mostly alike, but in essential and complementary ways, male and female were different. And as he named those animals, he saw among them none that would be his own complementary counterpart. So what did the Lord do? Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up, the, it closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, the not good that God sought to remedy in giving woman to man was more than functional, more than merely the means by which mankind would multiply and fill the earth. And we see this in Adam's declaration. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God created woman from the flesh of man 
And the man delights to see that she is truly his complementary counterpart, alike but different. And then God gives the reason for doing it this way. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we could stop here and decide to do a whole marriage discussion and talk about how the one flesh union works in marriage, but we don't have time for that today. But we want to focus a little bit on why they should become one flesh. Verse 24, they shall become one flesh. Leaving father and mother, the, the future man who has been created by God through procreation now seeks for himself that same one flesh union with woman who likewise came from woman and man. Now it's so important here to, to note the uniqueness of the man and the woman as image bearers of God Verse 24, they shall become one flesh. Now, now, Adam got this. Other creatures were given the ability to procreate. But only the human pairing between a man and a woman is described as a one flesh union. And that, as a result of that, he should hold fast to his wife. Now, this is contrary to common assumptions, at least societally speaking biologists and anthropologists will, will defend immoral polyamory or even serial monogamy by pointing to the animal kingdom. Well, they do it, therefore it's okay. And so the, the, the outworking of that to say, well, divorce happens, it's natural. Adultery, well, that's just natural. If one pair bond doesn't work, move on to the next. But I want to say that that denies the very image of God in man. Having that attitude about, about marriage denies the very image of God and man. See, for holding, for, for the man and woman, this holding fast, it implies more than just a, a functional union for procreation, but a covenant union established by God. And Jesus reinforced this. Quoting Genesis 1.24, Jesus explains, So they are no longer two but one flesh, and here it is, what God, there, what therefore God has joined together. God has joined together. Let not man separate, including you in your own marriage. Let not man separate. But beyond this, this, this one flesh union has a cosmic purpose. I, I often say this to couples when they are when they're wed, when I'm officiating their ceremony. And I say it in the pre-marriage counseling too. But I'll say publicly, sometimes to the shock of, of mostly unbelieving people, I'll say this marriage is not primarily about you. It's not primarily for you. God owns your marriage. God owns all marriages. Married people, your marriage isn't primarily for you. God owns your marriage, and he has a cosmic purpose for it. It is not good for the man to be alone. And what that does is points to a greater reality, 
that it's not good for mankind to be separated from. That is to say, out of fellowship with God. How do I get there? Well, the Apostle Paul explains the cosmic purpose of this one flesh union, the covenant marriage, Ephesians 5. Therefore, sorry, 5, 31, 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis. Then he says this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You hear that? This mystery is profound. It actually refers to Christ and the church. This is the point. Marriage is about God's covenant love for his people. God gave woman to man and man to woman to be in one flesh union for the sake, for the bigger picture of showing us in humanity something about himself that he revealed ultimately in Jesus, his son, See, marriage is a picture. It's meant to point us to the fact that God's people have been created to be in fellowship with Him. That's what it's for. And when you do marriage well, you shine a good light on the way God loves His people. And if you want to do marriage well, look to how God loves His people. See, God dwelled in Eden with man. God walked in the garden, chapter 3, verse 8. And in a sense, Eden and the garden was a temple. But because of sin, man was banished. We'll get to that. But God has provided a way for the man to have fellowship with God restored. Now, in Exodus, God provided the tabernacle. Then later when the Israelites possessed the land and the the kingdom was established, God gave them a temple. Yet the Israelites continued to rebel and the land and the temple were taken away. Yet God still desired for his people to dwell with him. His plan for that would not be thwarted. So we go back to the beginning. Ever since the beginning, God has had it in mind to dwell with his people. And he wants his people to return to Eden to fellowship with him. And we will get that someday as his people. Now, even though man's sin would break the fellowship with God, God made a way for that to be restored, that fellowship to be restored. So the Son of God, the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled, among us. He made his dwelling place among us. Just as the prophet Isaiah declared him Emmanuel, meaning God with us, Jesus the Christ. And when Jesus offered up his own life for our sin, it paved the way for man to be restored to fellowship with God. Again, because because of sin, man was banished from the garden, barred from accessing the tree of life, but But Jesus gave us a new tree of life. That tree, that cross, which would be his own death, became life for all who would look to him in faith. See the beauty of that? The very tree of Jesus' death becomes our tree of eternal life. 
And what's the result of that? You are no longer because of Christ. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the word of God. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together. What's the structure? Those who believe. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that's powerful. We, as the redeemed, as the ones who have looked to the cross of Christ, our tree of life, having looked to Christ in faith, seeing that he there on the cross bore in his own body the full consequence for our own sin and rebellion against God. Seeing him crucified and raised, when we gather together, God dwells with us. This is, brothers and sisters, I hope you see it, a foretaste of Eden that will be restored to us. So because of Christ, our cornerstone, when we gather together, again, we are the company of redeemed. We have become the very temple of God, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And every time we gather, it's a foretaste. Eden that is to come, the promised land where we will fully and eternally enjoy the smile, the voice, and the touch of God, never ever to be lost again. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you long for it? Do you long for that? We come here week by week. I hope you see it. It's to remind us of the eternal hope that we have in Christ. And when we set our hearts on his promises, what that does, it, it breaks our misplaced trust in the things that we see around us, in the false Edens that are presented to us by the world. This nation, the, the next election, medical science, technology, just the right government policies, stimulus checks. Our hope in Christ breaks our misplaced confidence in these false Edens and fits us for when Christ will return. God's good gifts. We long to be in that place and Jesus is preparing it. An ideal, eternal home. And until that time, we'll, we'll gather together on the Lord's day telling each other to look there, to put our hope in Christ. And as we live in this world, as strangers and aliens, still outside of Eden but longing for it, God gives and sustains life by his word. And he has done all of this so that we may have fellowship with him forever. And I trust that it is your hope today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good gifts that you give to us. And Lord, now as we put the focus on how those gifts come to us now, put the focus on Jesus and his cross, we pray that these tangible elements 
will communicate to us the beauty and the immensity of your grace. So continue with us by the Spirit, by your Spirit. We pray it through Jesus. Amen.